With the Gacy case now in the books, we are extremely excited to bring you the second season of Defense Diaries. If you listen to season one, the Gacy tapes, you know two things. One, when we say we are doing a deep dive, we mean it. And two, that I have a personal connection with both the Gacy case and the case which will be the subject of this season, which is the people of the state of Nebraska versus Dr. Anthony Garcia. When deciding which case to cover in the second season, both Darren and I knew that the Garcia case, without question, was the case to bring to you next. If you were a new listener of the pod, a little background will be helpful. I am a practicing criminal defense attorney of 20 plus years, licensed in both Illinois and Pennsylvania. So I feel pretty confident in saying that we bring a different angle to the pod than a majority of the true crime podcasts out there. In the Gacy case, my father was one of Gacy's trial attorneys, and he had given me his taped interviews with Gacy, which were incorporated throughout the narrative of the case throughout the first season. Now, as I was a 10-year-old boy at the time that the Gacy case was happening, I obviously had no professional attachment to that case. However, this season, we will be deep diving into five brutal homicides that took place in Omaha, Nebraska between the years of 2008 and 2015, in which I was lead counsel for Anthony Garcia. Now, if you're familiar with the Anthony Garcia case and you're sitting there saying to yourself, what in the hell is Bob talking about? Garcia was accused of killing four people, not five. Well, you'd be correct in that he was charged with four counts of first-degree murder. But there was another brutal homicide in Omaha that had occurred just months before the first victims, Thomas Hunter and Shirley Sherman, were killed that we will be examining very, very closely. But I'm getting ahead of myself, and you'll just have to wait for that. Now, if the state's theory of the case is correct, this saga spans 15 years because it was in 2001 that Anthony Garcia was a part of the residency program at the Creighton Medical Center. If they aren't correct, it spans eight years. So much like the Gacy case, nearly everything that you will hear about the Garcia case will be original source material. All information will be coming directly from the voluminous police reports, court transcripts, witness interviews, the experts, the attorneys, and of course, my memory. As an aside, we will attempt to interview the cops and the state's experts and maybe a state's attorney or two, but we aren't optimistic about them being willing to do so because of the fact that the trial was so antagonistic. Fear not, you will not be left wanting for details. You'll hear it all. Now, this will be much more than a peek behind the curtain experience for you listeners, as we not only will be giving you all of the facts and all of the evidence, but you will hear strategically how the case was approached by the defense. For all intents and purposes, you all will be members of the defense team. So, if you're one of those folks out there that has always thought, I should have been a lawyer because I win every argument, well, here's your chance. That being said, we want to hear from you as the season goes on. So follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Defense Diaries and join the Insiders group once you follow. Darren and I are very active with our listeners, so we really want to hear from you. It's my hope that I will continue throughout this season to answer the question that is most commonly asked of defense lawyers, which is, how can you defend somebody accused of doing such unspeakable things? It's a legitimate question. 
This case was absolutely tragic, but procedurally fascinating from a true crime perspective. And it wasn't just me that handled the case. Both my father, Bob Sr., and my wife, Allison, tried the case with me, along with local counsel from Omaha, Nebraska, who rounded out the defense team, which I will explain later in the pod. Before we dive into the case, I want to give you fair warning. This is an absolutely horrific case and involves the murder of a young, innocent 11-year-old boy, as well as three innocent adults. So if you cannot stomach violence that has befallen a child or cases that have extremely gory details, this particular season of Defense Diaries may not be your cup of tea. As discussing the underlying crimes and what happened to the victims cannot be avoided, Additionally, for those of you home sleuths out there who are wondering, Bob, how are you talking about a case that you handled? What about attorney-client privilege? Well, that too is a legitimate question. And the fact of the matter is that my client, Anthony Garcia, always maintained his innocence and he made zero admissions as to committing any of the crimes. So as I sit here today writing the script, there is nothing that I could tell you that would violate privilege because he never said anything to any of his lawyers that was incriminating that would qualify as privileged communications. That being said, the state of Nebraska had plenty to say about Anthony Garcia, and none of it was good. And up until now, unless you were sitting in the courtroom watching the trial, all that has ever been seen or heard about this case has been exclusively the state's case and theory of what happened to the four innocent souls who lost their lives at the hands of a killer or killers. Now, if you can't fight the urge to dig into this case online while the season is going on, we have no problem with that. Knock yourself out, because there is one immutable truth with regards to what you will find online. Aside from the jury, the defense's case of this story has never been reported in full until now. But I want to be very clear here at the outset This season will not be me standing on a soapbox professing my client's innocence. No, we will provide you with all of the facts from both the prosecution's case and the defense's case, as well as the truly unparalleled legal battle that ensued between the state and the defense, as both sides fought ferociously to achieve what they set out to do. Now, what we want you, our wonderful listeners, to do, should you accept the mission, is to act as the jury in this matter. So after you've heard all of the evidence, which will include evidence that was never heard by the jury, as there was much that was ruled inadmissible by the judge, we would like you to render your own verdicts. We will continue to do what we have always done in Defense Diaries, which is to arm you with the details of how the criminal justice system actually works. We will continue to show just how damn hard the job of criminal defense attorney is. It's not just the strategies and decisions that are made collectively behind the scenes on how to approach certain evidence or certain witnesses, but it's also having to develop incredibly thick skin because often the defense attorneys are as reviled as much as the alleged killer is. But notwithstanding that, there is a job to be done. I will tell you this, this was a death penalty case and we were out-of-town lawyers, there was certainly a home court advantage for the state in the case, as they did everything conceivable to get a conviction. And you'll hear all of it, the good, 
the bad, and the ugly. Finally, this would turn out to be the one and only case that I would try with my father during his storied career. He told me towards the end of it, in terms of the procedural war that went on for three plus years between the state and the defense, that the Gacy case didn't come close in comparison to what went on in the Garcia case. In other words, you're in for one hell of a ride. So strap yourselves in and let's dig in. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is Season 2, Tunnel Vision, The People versus Dr. Anthony Garcia, Episode 1, Murder in Dundee. On March 13th of 2008, the weather has finally begun to turn in Omaha, as winter was giving way to spring. One day mild and pleasant, the next feeling like a return to winter. Bill Hunter's alarm rudely wakes him from an otherwise pleasant sleep. He briefly looks over at the vacant spot where his wife typically lays next to him in bed. He missed her. She was currently in Hawaii for a medical conference, which meant that he was on kid duty, which Claire typically handled. He hops out of bed, quickly showers, and gets dressed for work. He makes his way up to the attic bedroom and pokes his head in where his youngest son, Tommy, is sleeping. Rise and shine, kiddo. Tommy grumbles and rolls over, as any 11-year-old does when they are ripped from their peaceful slumber. Tommy rubs his sleep from his eyes, grabs his wire-framed glasses off the bedstand, and crawls out of bed. Tom heads downstairs to his room, as he's been sleeping in his brother Jeff's room for a couple of weeks, as his brother is away at college. He digs around the pile of clothes on the floor for his outfit for the day. He slips on a pair of knee-length black Adidas shorts, which are his favorite, and a black t-shirt, socks, and finally, his favorite black hoodie. Don't forget to brush your teeth and comb your hair, Bill yells up to his son from the kitchen downstairs. Okay, Dad, Tom yells back down, still not fully awake. Bill hears the sound of Tommy's pounding feet coming down the stairs. He pours the milk into the waiting cereal bowl, and slides it towards his son as he enters the kitchen. Eat up and be quick about it. We got 10 minutes before we have to leave for the bus. Dad, I'm 11 years old. You don't have to bring me to the bus stop. It's embarrassing. It's not embarrassing, and I like to see you off to school because mom usually does it. Maybe not embarrassing for you, Tommy mumbles under his breath. What's that? Nothing. Looking at the light brown mop of hair sitting atop his son's head, He asks, did you comb your hair? I mean, kinda. This is just what my hair looks like, Dad. Fine, let's go. Do you have your house key? Tommy gives his father a sly grin, exposing his braced teeth. He slips his feet into his sneakers and grabs his backpack. With that, Bill and Tommy Hunter walk out of the back door of the house, which is the typical way in and out of the house for the family. They stand silently in front of their home, waiting for the bus to approach. At 6.40 a.m., the bus that would haul Tom off to King Science and Technology Center 
a magnet school that Tom had transferred into at the end of fourth grade, comes rolling down 54th Street and stops in front of the hunter's residence. Have a good day, Tom, Bill says to his son. Okay, Tom answers as he climbs aboard the bus. Bill Hunter watches as his youngest son's bus pulls away from their home of 25 years, which is located in the upscale Dundee neighborhood. Bill walks up the driveway to his car, gets in, and heads to work at Creighton University Medical Center, where he is the director of the forensic pathology program. His thoughts are already shifting to what lay ahead of him at the office. It's going to be a very busy day. As match day, which is the day the doctors all over the country open a plain white envelope to discover what residency program they've been matched with, and that was fast approaching. One thought that was most definitely not on Bill Hunter's mind on this day was that he would be spending the better part of his evening being questioned by two Omaha police detectives in a small room in the Omaha Police Department. At around noon, over at 5631 Miami Street, a couple of miles away from the Hunter's home, Shirley Sherman loads her cleaning supplies into her car, which is parked outside of her home. She's running a bit late, which concerns her because she recently had a conversation with Claire Hunter about showing up for work late, or not at all, in recent months. She explained to Claire that her daughter Kelly had been having serious relationship issues and that things had turned violent. So she had been trying to help her obtain an order of protection against her boyfriend, a guy named Jeff Whitfeld. Shirley had been cleaning the Hunter's home for nearly two years, and she could ill afford to lose the Hunter's business. The thought being that if that happened, it could cause a domino effect of lost business as the other doctor's homes that she cleaned had referred Claire to her. She had promised Claire that things had settled down in her life and that she would be reliable moving forward. While this is what she told Claire, the reality is that she was consumed with protecting her daughter and more importantly, her granddaughter Madison, whom she absolutely adores and will do anything for, including calling Child Protective Services in order to facilitate getting custody of Madison as she feels at that particular time, her daughter Kelly was not able to provide for her daughter, physically or financially. Surely, as she had done for the entirety of her life, puts the needs of others ahead of her own. And no one ranked higher on her list than Madison. She finishes getting the car packed up and heads back into the house to make herself something to eat before she leaves to go and clean the hunter's home. Shirley makes it over to the Hunters at around 2 o'clock. She pulls in the driveway and parks her car back near the garage. She lets herself in the back door with a house key that had been supplied to her by Claire. She makes a couple of trips back and forth to the car, hauling her cleaning supplies into the house. Her knees are aching and throbbing, but as always, she will power through. So, she goes to work. Meanwhile... At King Science, Tom looks up at the clock, impatiently waiting for the school day to end. His mind has already shifted to daydreaming about jumping online with his Xbox and getting into some serious gaming with his online friends, who all play Wyville and Call of Duty. The excruciating wait finally ends as the final bell rings. 
the kids all stream out of the classroom, grab their belongings, and make their way to the waiting buses. Tom sits towards the back of the bus, staring out the window. At around 2.55 p.m., the bus makes the turn onto his street, and shortly thereafter, comes to a stop in front of his house. He scoops his backpack off the bench seat and makes his way off the bus. He walks up the long driveway that runs parallel to the house. Once he reaches the patio area, he sees the back door is swung open. He quickly remembers that it's Thursday, and that means Shirley's there, cleaning. It's the one day of the week that he isn't home alone after school. Not that he minded being a latchkey kid, because if his parents were home, instead of at work, they most assuredly would make him do his homework after snack. Tom? Well, he had much bigger plans, much better plans. It was time to start some serious gaming. He calls out hello to Shirley, who was upstairs cleaning, and she yells out hello back to him. He drops his backpack near the round kitchen table, peels his hoodie off, and slips out of his shoes. He grabs a can of Dr. Pepper out of the fridge, snags a full-size bag of Sun Chips out of the pantry, and makes his way to the basement family room, which is where the magic happens. Tom fires up the TV and the Xbox, plops down on the floor in gaming position, and picks up his headset and places it upon his head. He logs into Wyville, which is an online community geared towards young teens, and starts searching for his online friends. He has a solid two hours of uninterrupted joy in front of him before his dad gets home and makes him do stupid, boring stuff like homework and eating dinner and small talk. At approximately 3.20 p.m., the stranger takes a right off of Davenport Street onto North 54th Street and slows his compact SUV almost to a crawl. As he approaches the first house on the east side of the street, he nearly comes to a full stop and he leans in towards the passenger side window in order to try and make out the address. It appears to be 301. He accelerates slightly as he approaches the next house on the block and stops again as he reaches a position to read the address of the next home. It was set back, but had to be at least 20 yards from the street. He once again strains to make out the address. 303. That's the one, he thinks to himself. So engrossed in what he's doing, he pays no attention to the fact that this particular neighborhood, on this particular day, is teeming with activity. Parents are walking to pick their kids up from the bus stop. Kids are playing in an area affectionately referred to as the Pie, which is a rectangular island of land that kids in the area use as a makeshift park. People are running errands, and others are simply looking out their windows. This is the type of neighborhood where, if you weren't familiar to the area, the residents would take note. And the stranger, well, he was oblivious to all of the eyes that were being laid on him. And frankly, he doesn't care. He's on a mission and is laser focused on the task at hand. He inches forward a few feet more and once again stops when he reaches the north end of the house. He needs to know if he has access to the property through the backyard. He gets his answer, and he hits the gas and speeds off 
He needs to park, but not on the block the house was on. No, he needs to be discreet. A little late for that. He also has to be within walking distance, but not too close. A different street was the move. The stranger ends up finding a nice, quiet place to park, just a couple of blocks south and one block over, on 53rd Street. He pulls over, and he puts the car in park. He sits quietly for a moment to gather his thoughts. He grabs his black satchel that sits on the passenger seat and lifts the long strap over his head, resting the pad on his shoulder so that the strap lays across his body and the bag rests on his hip. He gets out of the vehicle, locks it, and starts walking north on 53rd. Once again, he's completely unaware that prying eyes are watching his every move. He will walk with purpose. He will walk as if he is familiar. He will walk as if he belongs, except he doesn't belong. At about 3.40, he reaches the 300 block of 54th Street. Look straight ahead. Don't draw attention. Just a man delivering important information. Nothing to see here, the stranger thinks to himself. He reaches his destination and begins to ascend the walkway and then the stairs that lead to the front door of the impressive home that sits atop a small rise. Paul Medine, a neighbor who was walking with his seven-year-old Stefan, who had stayed home sick from school on this particular day, to pick up his other children who attend Dundee Elementary, is approximately 30 feet behind the stranger, and he watches as this unknown man walks up the stairs towards the front door of the hunter's home. Paul's not sure why he's intrigued by this man, but he is. The stranger takes a deep breath and slowly moves his pointed index finger towards the doorbell. There's no turning back, he thinks. He thrusts his finger forward and rings the bell. He can hear the chiming of the doorbell echoing throughout the home. Paul Medine stops in front of the hunter's house because Stefan is lagging behind. And to watch the man at Hunter's door. The man who had been wearing a dark-colored baseball hat when he had been walking towards the house has removed it upon arriving at Hunter's door. Maybe he's a salesman and is just being polite by removing his hat, Medine thinks to himself. Shirley is in the process of cleaning the upstairs bathroom when she hears the doorbell. She hopes that Tommy will answer the door. So she stays put and goes back to scouring the sink counter. Tommy also hears the doorbell ring. He waits to see if Shirley will answer. She doesn't. Tom doesn't care. He's exactly where he wants to be. He goes back to chatting with his friends online. The stranger looks back over his shoulder and notices that a man has stopped on the sidewalk in front of the house and is staring directly at him. He makes direct eye contact with the nosy neighbor, then turns his attention back to the front door. Time seems to be standing still for the stranger, yet he continues the agonizing wait. He rings the bell a second time, then he looks back again. The man is still there, watching. 
the man appears to have a child with him who has fallen behind, but he's closing the gap between himself and the man. When the doorbell rings a second time, Shirley's agitated. Son of a bitch, she says under her breath. She's very close to ignoring the beckoning doorbell. If Tom doesn't care, either do I, she thinks briefly, before deciding to answer it, as it could be a package being delivered. So she strips off her rubber gloves and tosses them on the sink and walks down the stairs towards the front door. When Tommy hears the bell ring a second time, he sighs audibly and pauses the game. Then, he hears Shirley's footsteps walk across the floor above him. Sweet. The stranger hears of the deadbolt suddenly being turned and once again faces forward, and the door opens. An older woman with glasses and a blue bandana being worn do-rag style stands before him. She appears to be slightly out of breath. Can I help you? She asks. The stranger can sense the irritation in her voice. Yes, you can. Paul watches as the front door opens and a woman appears before the man. They converse. He doesn't sense that the woman is in peril as the woman looks to be comfortable and is making no movements that would signal that she's in distress. Tommy can hear that Shirley has opened the door and that words are being spoken, albeit words that he can't make out. And he doesn't really care. He's in the thick of it here in Wyville. Stefan is finally caught up in Paul at this point, commences his walk to his kid's school. After about 15 feet, just past a hedge line, he looks back one last time, and the unknown man and the woman who had answered the door are no longer there. Tommy hears what sounds like not one but two sets of feet walking across the floor above him towards the kitchen. He can hear a muffled conversation take place. Who the heck is here, Tom wonders. Probably somebody to help Shirley clean. Shirley's not calling down to him, so it's not a friend asking to play. So he goes back to his game. That is, until he hears what he thinks is a short scream. He pauses his game and pulls his headset off and stands up. The pace of the footsteps above him increases. They sound panicked, as if someone is running and someone is chasing. Then suddenly, it stops. The stranger stands completely still in the kitchen. He knows someone else was in the house, a child. He saw the backpack on the ground near the table in the dining nook when he walked into the house. Tommy waits not making a sound. He waits for what seems like an hour before he tiptoes towards the stairs, putting a foot on the first riser. He calls out, Shirley? No answer. It sounds like a young boy, which is good, the stranger thinks to himself. He reaches towards the knife block and silently slides not one but two knives from the block. Then he waits, patiently, in complete silence. Tom gingerly walks about halfway up the stairs and calls out to Shirley again, 
Again, no response. Tom can feel his heart pounding in his chest. He is scared. No, he is terrified. He listens carefully and can hear no movement. It's dead silent. Hello? He calls out, his voice cracking slightly to no one in particular. And again, no one answers. Tommy can't bring himself to move. A tear gently slides down his cheek and comes to rest on his lips. He can taste the salt of the teardrop. He continues to stand motionless, waiting to see if he hears if someone is still up there. It seems as if time is standing still. He then quietly begins ascending up the stairs, one step at a time, until he reaches the top step. He stops cold. From his vantage point, he can only see the back door, which is wide open, as it was when he got home from school. He desperately wants to peek around the wall that is obstructing his view of the hallway, but he's paralyzed with fear. He calls out, Hello? One more time, and again, nothing. Tom takes the final step under the first floor and peeks his head around the wall. At approximately 4.12 p.m., Arlene Adelson is driving southbound on 54th Street past the hunter's home when an unknown man walking in the same direction catches her attention. She was approaching him from behind, and she notices the man has dark, matted hair. She can't place what it is about this man, intuition maybe, but as she drives past him, the hairs on her neck stand on end. Something about this man terrifies her. Bill Hunter looks at his watch. It's getting late and he has to get home to feed Tom. The department meeting regarding the candidates for match day has just ended. It's around 5.30. Bill walks back to his office, shuts down his computer, puts on his jacket and leaves for the day. His car is parked in the hospital lot, which is about a 10 minute walk. The Creighton Medical Center is about a 10 minute drive from the house. And at about 5.50 p.m., Bill pulls into his driveway and notices immediately that Shirley's car is still there. What the hell, he says to himself. He opens the garage door and Claire's Audi is still parked in there. He parks the car and he gets out. Bill notices that the back door is swung wide open, which is not unusual when Shirley is there cleaning as she keeps it open to haul garbage bags out to the cans. But why is she still here cleaning? She's usually done by four, four thirty, maybe five. Bill's a bit irritated by this fact. As he approaches the open back door, one thing is absolutely certain, and that is that there exists no set of circumstances that can prepare Bill Hunter mentally or emotionally for what he is about to discover in his home. Bill reaches for the screen door to pull it open. Upon entering the house, his heart felt as if it had jumped into his throat as he sees 
what you will hear on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Thank you for joining us for the second season of Defense Diaries. If you're new to the pod and simply cannot wait until next week's episode, well, then we have the perfect remedy for you. Listen to season one, The Gacy Tapes. If you think that you've heard The Gacy Story too many times to count, trust us, you haven't heard it like this. If you've already listened to the season one and you want to hear more of my big mouth, join our defense team at www.patreon.com backslash defense diaries. Not only do you get ad-free episodes, but you also get a lot of extra content, such as bonus episodes and collaborations that we've done with other shows. This season, we will be dropping our weekly episodes on Patreon earlier than on the regular feed. We tried to do that last season, but we just couldn't get ahead of the game. So we're changing that this season. Plus, you're supporting the show. Also, please remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on whatever platform you find your pods. This one act alone has a massive effect on the algorithm to get the show moving up the charts. It's a numbers game, and y'all are the unequivocal X factor. Also, follow us on socials at Defense Diaries on Instagram and Facebook and Defense underscore Diaries on Twitter. Also, we are finally hitting the road for some live entertainment. If you are in or around New Orleans and don't have anything to do on March 24th, join us for a live meetup with Darren and I, Josh Hallmark of the amazing podcast True Crime Bullshit, and Whitney Diane and Melissa Leanne of the fantastic podcast Cults, Crimes, and Cabernet. So come to Barrel Proof at 6.30 p.m. It's free, so let's all go and get weird together and talk about all things true crime. And finally, thank you all so, so much for listening to the pod. Because without you, I'd just be an old man talking about old cases. Talk to you next time.